Ah, welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Podcast. In this one, I I don't know how long we're supposed to stretch these out for. I always think we talked about it before, how like Netflix and stuff, you know, it's all about that arc. It's about creating arcs. And although part four of a Caesar special does does feel a bit extensive. But I think we wrapped up last week's at like the hour point. And we're like, we can't really keep going. My my mouth is dry and my brain is hurting. And these we just had so many bonus facts that we thought we'd kind of spin them off into its own episode, right? So here we are. Shall we a little bit of housekeeping first? Is there anything we need to follow up from from last week's episode? I realized I forgot to do that on the last one and then I realized we might want to do it on this one, but there wasn't anything on my agenda. Is there anything on yours? I don't think so. Just the normal stuff. Remember, if you want to say hi, join us on our forums at forums.todayifoundout.com or just go to todayifoundout.com and click over to forums, say hi, suggestions, uh, let us know how we're doing, all of that good stuff. If you really want to know, how, let us know how we're doing in a very public forum, you can leave us an iTunes review. Uh, we're aiming for 100 reviews and when we get to 100 reviews, we're going to give away a $100 Amazon gift card or whatever that is in your local currency and $25 each to runners up. So if you go over, leave us an honest review. It doesn't have to be good or or bad. It can just be however you honestly feel we're doing. Do you want to do a couple of reviews? Um, we can sure. see how people are doing. What do you think? Sure. We got time. We got time. It's a bonus facts episode. Although I realize there are tons of bonus facts yeah, for us to go through. Some good stuff in here. They all look really cool. All wishes. Ali wishes says, guys, love the YouTube channel and now the podcast too. I have the best of both worlds. The wife and I both love y'all. You all, I guess that means. Yeah. Keep on keeping on. Jerry and Michelle, friends, Paragould from Arkansas. Arkansas in the oh. South, right? Yeah. I, I, read, uh, I read Bill Clinton's autobiography a long time ago. Really? And yeah, it's a good one. And, and through the whole time, I was reading that in my head as Arkansas. Like, <laughs> Arkansas. Yeah. You know, you think like Kansas. Yeah. I know Kansas. And it's, no, it's actually Arkansas. Like Arkansas? <laughs> no, it just makes it. Oh, is that another option? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Arkansas. <laughs> The sassiest of all the states. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got here? Man Videos says, first, I love the podcast. Second, I love all the bonus facts and all the side topics you seem to get lost on. And C, let's call this the bonus factoid of my review. Today, I found out that you can take the letters from both of your names, David and Simon, and you can spell Man Videos. So there's the, which would be entirely accurate. What's our male to female percentage on YouTube? It's like 80, 20 or something. Yeah. yeah and just a full disclosure on this one. I actually know who that is. Uh, and so that person, that, you do? that person can't win. That's actually my brother, John. He actually came <laughs> up with a lot of different, uh, different ways you can mix the letters and come up with different things. He thought that was the best, but he actually, to be fair, is the only podcast he's ever listened to. And he actually enjoys it. Like actually listens to it while he's working on stuff. So, you know, it's actually actual a genuine review, not just him giving us five stars because he likes the or because he wants to give us. Now, the, I, I really like the ones like this where it's like kind of like this is the only podcast I listen to or the first podcast I listen to because yeah. then it's like people actually liked it enough. I assume they maybe listened yeah. to a preview or something or on YouTube and were like, I'm actually going to get into podcasts because. Yeah, well, and I, I can tell you, he, w- he would not listen to it just just uh, if he didn't enjoy it, like he would just be like, no, I didn't listen to your thing. Why, why would I do that? Uh, he doesn't read my articles. He doesn't, uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, he's actually the, for anyone who wants to know, you may, may better known him as the owner of dumpaday.com, which is one of the, uh, one of the world's most popular funny picture sites and has been for a long time. It runs in your family, right? You've got you doing Today I Found Out, your brother, one of your yeah. brothers doing Dumpaday and then Scott with uh, Medical Confessions. And this is, this is the thing about Dumpaday though. I feel like he doesn't do a good enough job of like, he makes 
so many of those memes. And there are many memes on the internet that he came up with. And everyone, someone else gets credit for it every time. Like you go to know your meme and it's like, no, no, that was, that was his. Like he actually found the picture. Yeah. But he doesn't like to do that. He's like, no, I don't. Cause you know, he doesn't make all the memes up. You know, sometimes it's just memes. Someone's have come up. So he doesn't want to, he's like, no, I'll just, you know, (laughs) contribute. But he makes up so many of the funny, funny say like, you know, all the captions, quite a lot of them. He just, you know, he just sits around, thinks up funny stuff to say, to put on, you know, the pictures and stuff. And so, yeah. Is that, that's a lot of soft power, you know. It's that's a, a lot of soft power, the ability to create memes. Yeah, and it, it is funny because there'll be like, if he ever stops running that site, there'll be like a sort of like that, uh, the Jedi, like suddenly like a, uh, millions of voices <laughs> cried out. Memes. Yeah, because like so many, uh, so many, so many meme sites just go to his site and then copy him. And then like the next day you'll find them all over Reddit and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, uh, it'll be like if he actually stopped making them, like it'd be, it'd be quite, quite funny. But yeah. He's a funny guy, obviously. Was it you or maybe it was Shell who I work on top tens with? Someone was like, they they sent him, an, or maybe it was you, an email and said like, or you didn't publish articles in a while or something and they were ripping them off and putting them on YouTube with like a robot voice. <laughs> and someone sent them an email saying, uh, can you start publishing articles again? Because you've really hurt my business. <laughs> like, I can't rip your ass. <laughs> like, uh, you, what? <laughs> that wasn't you, was it? No, I don't think so. No, that doesn't. Okay, I can't. I, it's super blurry. I can't remember the exact story, but it's, this sounds vaguely familiar, like, though. So perhaps I, perhaps Shell. Right. Where is this from? Shell told me. Maybe we both know a story. Shell have said. Maybe it was Carl. Did it come up in the Carl interview? Or perhaps this really is like something like, and I've just completely forgotten about it. <laughs> this is a possibility. Yeah. We should give Carl, Carl, who, if you've been oh. interviewed, if you listen to this, this podcast, Finally. in like the last few weeks, crazy, right? Carl, who we were talking to, and he was like, oh, it'll be, you know, I'm looking forward to like, hopefully my channel will go somewhere and I'll get some attention from Google eventually. And it's like, what, just the last two weeks or the last, yeah. I think he's been adding like four or 5,000 subscribers a day. Yeah. And actually Crick. his views are crazy, like 300,000 views crazy. a day. Crazy. All of a sudden it was, it's kind of the same thing that happened today. I found out where all of a sudden the algorithm's like, all right, I'll promote a few. And then it's like, oh, well, these are doing really well. And everyone's binge watching all his videos because they're evergreen content and everything. Lots of people subscribing. So, of course, the YouTube algorithms be like, OK, I'll promote this video then because it's doing well. And then I'll promote this one. And he has such this big, I don't know, maybe 100 videos or something back catalog where it's just like keeps it's just keeps, you know, feeding in on itself and it'll it'll die out eventually. But once it kind of goes, the algorithm goes through all the videos. But same thing. Uh, we had like 500 videos at the time. So we lasted a long time. But yeah, it's finally good. I'm I'm just dreading now because it's it's only a matter of time before he emails and me is like, so I don't need to work for you anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh, all right then. But no, I'd be quite happy for him because it's about time. He's been he's does quality work and uh, he should have been popular a lot a long time ago. But I think it just serves as as a reminder to everyone who's I know this is a podcast and probably people listening to this might not know. Uh, I, I guess actually a lot of people currently listening probably know our YouTube channel, but hopefully when we get some exposure in ITs, people are like, you guys have a YouTube channel? What's up with that? But I think it's just another statement of it, you've you've really got to do it for a long time. Yeah. It, the, the, the YouTubers who just jumped to success from nothing are, are rare. And then even when they do seem to be people who've jumped to success from nothing, it's like, yeah, but they had like 80 billion followers on Instagram before they came to YouTube. And or they were like, like, so that's why. Or they were around at the very beginning in the earliest days and the algorithm just happened to grace them, you know, from the beginning. But but yeah, even even then, like a lot of the a lot of the big ones, when you actually look like even like a Vsauce or something, if you scroll through, which I still haven't watched one of his videos, but I have scrolled through his archive. (laughs) uh, And if you go all the way back. 
Like he's got so many videos, like I think a couple years worth that had nothing to do with facts. They were just random completely. And then finally, you know, he did a couple facts ones. They did well. And so then he just kept doing more of that. And uh, and then, you know, that grew from there. But so, yeah, almost always there's like this huge backlog of people just trying different things and sort of honing their craft. But um, Carl's, I felt like were good. Like his first video was good right right from the start. But he had, of course, uh, even then, like had you had YouTube made him popular right away. Even then he had like seven, eight years of writing interesting fact stuff. So it wasn't like he was just starting from scratch just there. He was nothing. Yeah, he was just starting videos from scratch, but he had actually been doing this for quite a long time. You've got to have so much faith in your content on YouTube. The fact yeah. that like Carl continued making them for what? over a year right he yeah it's it gotta be he's got a ton of videos so and he doesn't he puts them out only a couple times a week so so yeah uh lesson there keep on going for you me me twice um yeah just you gotta keep producing and you gotta be like it's gonna work someday yeah. please well, yeah if you're, if you're continually improving content and continually you know all listening to feedback and, and you'll get better and better even if you start out good and eventually if you're good enough eventually i mean someone's gonna notice and always pay attention to that watch time yeah. Always be looking at that and that percentage views. Yeah. <laughs> That's what YouTube cares about. Should we get into some uh, bonus facts? Some Caesar. Yeah. So we're uh, sort of speaking. So for people who maybe are just jumping to this one, the last series we've been doing on the, the Caesar and his kind of life arc from the beginning to getting kidnapped by pirates and then uh, kind of the Ides of March, the real story behind it and sort of, uh, sort of why he marched on Rome and everything like that. And so mm-hmm. now. We're kind of just doing related stuff and just some interesting stuff. So, so uh, you're familiar with John Wilkes Booth, yeah? Uh, Lincoln's assassin. Yes, sure. Yeah, so he he was. Uh, you do. Love, we've we. I guess this is maybe what the bonus facts about. Uh, this this guy's got some stories. Yeah. So the. Uh, so yeah, he is a famous actor. I don't know if you are aware of that part, but yeah, he. Yeah, dude. I, I remember someone describing it to me once as it would be like, uh, who's that? Who's that actor who has a slightly less famous brother? Or it would be like Owen Wilson's brother, yeah. Luke Wilson. Yeah. It would be like if Luke Wilson killed Trump. Yeah. It's kind of like, he's like, he's famous in himself, which yeah. is a notable thing, but his brother is an absolute superstar. Yeah. So his, Although maybe these days Luke Wilson is more famous than Owen Wilson. I don't know. But yeah, it, it was basically like this. It's a family. The brothers, they're all really famous ac- actors. You have John Wilkes Booth, Junius, <laughs> uh, funny enough, Junius Brutus Booth. Uh, junior. Oh, and uh, is that why this is a bonus fact? Uh, no, actually. So and then there's Edwin <laughs> double Booth. tie-in. Yeah. So there's there is. Uh, so they're all you know huge actors of their day. And uh, yeah. and if you go back to listen to the uh, the throwing tomatoes one, that being an actor at that point was a little different than now. As you can go, everyone can go back listen to episode audience one. really got involved. Yeah, they did. And so yeah. in any event, they're very famous, very highly acclaimed, everything. But so. Speaking of this, the only time they ever ever appeared together in a play was on the portrayal of Ju- Julius Caesar in 1864. Oh, it wasn't. Yeah, and this one. That's so awesome. John Wilkes played Mark Antony, Junius played Cassius, and Edwin played Brutus. And the thing is, the funds from this performance, if you go to Central Park, there's a statue of William Shakespeare, and the funds from that performance of those three is actually what paid for that statue of William Shakespeare that's still there today. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I like that. And yeah. even better, this gets better. So speaking of assassinations of uh, famous people, so in this case, Lincoln. <laughs> so Edwin Booth. Edwin Booth was not like uh, John Wilkes Booth. So John Wilkes Booth hated Lincoln, thought he was going to take over and declare himself king. Like literally, this is what he thought. Uh, and so this is what he's thinking. Edwin Booth, on the other hand, huge Lincoln supporter, huge fan of the Union, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. And so Edwin Booth ends up saving the life of Abraham Lincoln's son. 
uh, sort of indirectly, completely on accident, had nothing to do with any assassination attempt or anything like that. I feel like we've done a video about this, have we? I think or... it's probably been in a bonus fact somewhere because I really like it. Oh, yeah. uh, and so normally when you hear like little anecdotes like this, like it's like, no, that's probably just something someone made uh-huh. up. But this time we have pretty good, we have a good source on this one. None other than Robert Todd Lincoln himself is the one who who is the origin of this story. That's the son, right? Yes, that's uh, Lincoln's only son that only, I think it might've been his only kid that survived to adulthood. He had other kids, but they all, you know, as, as people did back then, kids didn't always yeah. survive very, you know, a lot of times they died. Anyway, so the incident, uh, Robert Lincoln did not say exactly when it took place, but it was definitely before the assassination. And uh, somewhere it's thought to be around 1863 to 1865 in the Jersey City mm-hmm. Railroad Station. Um, so do you want to read the Robert Lincoln actually recounts exactly what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he writes, The incident occurred while a group of passengers were, late at night, purchasing their sleeping car places from the conductor who stood on the station platform at the entrance of the car. The platform was about the height of the car floor, and there was, of course, a narrow space between the platform and the car body. There was some crowding, and I happened to be pressed by it against the car body while waiting my turn. In this situation, the train began to move, and by the motion I was twisted off my feet and had dropped somewhat with feet downward into the open space and was personally helpless when my coat collar was vigorously seized and I was quickly pulled up and out to a secure footing on the platform. Upon turning to thank my rescuer, I saw it was Edwin Booth, whose face, of course, was well known to me, and I expressed my gratitude to him and in doing so called him by name. Wow. It's pretty details. Yeah, exactly. And so he, he was, you know, fell in between. The train was starting to move. He was going to get trushed, crushed and kind of ran over and squished in, in between the, the platform and the train as it's going along. And so, yeah, yeah, Booth grabs him, pulls him out. And this was the thing is Edwin Booth did not actually know he had just saved the life of Lincoln's son. He was a huge Lincoln supporter, so he would have been like really happy about that. But he apparently didn't know until uh, after the assassination is when he found out. Uh, so... Um, he received a letter from one Colonel Adam Badeau, uh, who was a friend of Booth's and also a friend of Lincoln's, uh, Robert Lincoln, I should say. And uh, so he he, re- uh-huh. he recounted the tale because Robert Lincoln had told him the tale. And he said, hey, did you know? Because, uh, you know, Edwin Booth being a huge supporter of Lincoln, like when when Lincoln got assassinated by his brother, uh, Edwin Booth's now disgraced. Like he's nobody wants to work with him. He's he's you know, he loses his career. He loses his, you know, his president. He was quite supportive, loses his brother because his brother gets killed. <sighs> And so yeah. it's like, it's not a good time for him. And so he actually had, the, apparently his friends had to go on suicide watch with him and everything for several months. And this actually, this story, when he got this letter, this is probably why Colonel Adam uh, wrote it just to sort of comfort him to um, telling the story Robert Lincoln had told him. Because um, Robert Lincoln and and, and uh, Colonel Adam Badeau were, um, they were members of uh, General Ulysses S. Grant's staff. So they were kind of mm-hmm. um, buddies there. And um, so, yeah, um, Booth really liked this. And he was he was quite happy that at least, you know, he had done something to save the president's son life uh, anyway, even if his brother had killed the president. So yeah, that helped. And he, he eventually did actually return to the stage about eight months later. He, he managed to come back and uh, kind of rekindle his career a little bit. But um, yeah, hmm. it was quite, quite interesting. And um, now we're going to talk more about Robert Todd Lincoln because he, he was an interesting guy that not a lot of people know a lot about. No, I, 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 the only thing I know about Lincoln's son perhaps was that uh, uh, this 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 very story about him being yeah I always remember him being yanked out. It's quite quite dramatic. Yeah. Like I just imagine this like strong guy like whoop yep. <laughs> up you come yeah exactly grab by the collar so kind of like choking him a little bit. Poor Robert Todd Lincoln, right? 
So here's what happens. So uh, he was present or and a witness at the assassination of U.S. President Garfield in 1881. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, uh, Lincoln or Todd uh, Robert Lincoln was serving as the Secretary of War. Um, he was further present when President McKinley was shot in 1901. Oh, yeah. And then finally, this guy's like cursed. Yeah. And so finally, and this is like the other way he's cursed is that he was supposed to go to the theater with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was invited along, but he decided to not go the night Abraham Lincoln was shot. And he decided to go with a friend of his uh, the, um, president's private secretary, John Hay. He was going to go hang out with him instead. And this was significant because yeah. had he gone, he would have been sitting at the back right next to the door. So John Wilkes Booth would have had to walk by him to get close enough because, you know, those Derringers he was using to shoot, they, you had to be like right next to the person. Or, shoot super short range. Yeah, he had to, or it would just fly off in you know some direction. And so uh, John Wilkes had to walk right up to him, but he was able to because there was no one sitting there. He could walk right up to him, shoot him in the head. Uh, and so had, had uh, Robert Todd Lincoln been there, he would have been sitting by the door in the back because he was the youngest member of the group. And uh, so he would have had to walk by him to get close enough or take the shot from further away, in which case he might have missed, you know. And so so uh, Robert Todd Lincoln sort of uh, always regretted not going to the theater at the time. So, yeah, not only did he witness these uh, assassinations, but also if he had been there, he, I mean, he may have still witnessed the assassination of his father, but maybe he could have done something about it. Wow. Robert Todd Lincoln's he needs he needed therapy. Yeah. For sure. Like this is this is rough. Yeah. So he was uh, present or close to the, the these different assassination assassinations and then after this he just started uh, turning turning down any invitation to come be in the presence <laughs> yeah. of a presidential figure he was like no i am not surprised yeah and so he has this great quote he says you want to read it uh, he says no i'm not going and they better not ask me because there is a certain fatality about presidential functions when i am present yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i'm like completely skeptical anti-superstitious yeah. But he, after that, I'd be like, mm, I'll I, I give it a miss. If nothing else, it's a great excuse to get out. Like if you don't really want to go socialize, you're just like, oh, I don't want to go. And you're like, oh, well, I'll just... People get murdered yeah, get around murdered. me. It's not going. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so he did make an exception in 1922 when the Lincoln Memorial was being uh, designated and President Harding was present uh, and as well as former President Taft. And so he he did go to that one, but no one no one was shot there. So uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't remember any assassinations of Harding or Taft. They didn't get assassinated, right? Yeah, no. So yeah, speaking of Caesar, uh, which we talked about the last episode, so I guess. previous separate episodes, yeah. (laughs) So now we're going to talk about... That's how we tie things in. If you go all the way back to episode one, where we're talking about the Caesarean section and how it's not really probably named after Caesar, as people think. Uh, But this one, something else that is not named after Caesar that everyone thinks is, it seems like, is Caesar salad. Not named after Caesar at all. Uh, it was named after a guy named Caesar Cardini. He was uh, Italian. Well, could Caesar Cardini have been named after Julius Caesar? Yeah, presumably at some point. So, I mean, I guess indirectly. Yeah. But Caesar Cardini, he was an Italian <laughs> chef who uh, he immigrated to the U.S. Uh, after World War One, And then so, yeah, he made his home in uh, Southern California there by San Diego and um, opened a restaurant actually in Tijuana because they had prohibition at the time. So a lot of you'd open the restaurant <laughs> across the, right across the border and then that's where everyone would go. <laughs> Uh, you know, for a night on the town. This is brilliant for border, right? That, yeah. like, pro- prohibition. Where are you going for dinner? Mexico. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is the funny thing about prohibition, because if you actually look at the drinking stats, like drinking, people drank more once it, like it became a thing. They're like, don't do this. And then everyone is just like human nature. Like, no, I'm definitely going to do this now. Uh, like the drink. It must be awesome. Yeah, this is, this is what happens. So, so yeah, it, drinking, uh, the statistics actually went up and then organized crime went up and, you know, all this. So, Wait, hold, hold on, hold on a sec. It, 
is the the drinking age in Mexico is eighteen, right? I'm not sure. I'm guessing it is. Like I, I was there, and I'm I, I'm pretty confident. So there must be there must be this thing of like anyone who lives on like a border town who's like younger than twenty one. And I also I'm just gonna guess in Mexico they're less into into IDing people. Yeah, I, I just it is it is your. You are correct. It is 18. And yes, this is a thing, at least up near Canada, because where I went to college, they're right near the border. Oh, right. The other way, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This was a thing that college students would do all the time. If you're 18 and you buy booze in Mexico and then bring it back over in your car. Oh, no, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd be able to get. I don't think you'd get away with that. Ah, that's weird. You know what? The law, I, again, not a liar, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm fairly sure in the in the UK, at least, the law is against the purchase of alcohol. You can drink alcohol at whatever mm-hmm. age you damn please. Mm-hmm. It's just about, or maybe it's like 13 or something, mm-hmm. but it's the purchase of alcohol. So if it was 21, you could like hop over to France, you could bring it back and they'd be like, how old are you? I'm 12. But you know, they're like your boots full of booze. It's like, yeah, that's cool. I haven't, I'm not buying it, am I? Yeah. I want to say the law is somewhat similar in the US in that I mean, you can't in public places and stuff, but I feel like in your own home, like if you're a parent and you want to give your kids some alcohol, I think that's allowed. I could be wrong. And it might, yeah. it might vary based on state, perhaps. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, of um, course. Yeah. But, uh, but either way, um, yeah, that was a thing. Uh, it's 19, 19 years old in Canada, um, or at least it used to be. Um, when I was in college a long time ago. Uh, and so, yeah, people would go, people would go and drink. Um, it was definitely a thing that happened. So uh, anyway, so he opens a restaurant down there. And um, so there's, there's a few different stories about Caesar salads origin. Uh, they all, but they all are around Caesar Cardini and his, his restaurant. So his daughter says it was on July 4th, 1924 when he, um, as, mm-hmm. as uh, you know, he was running short of supplies. This is always like the story. So who knows? Uh, but and so I he, love that one about the chicken wings. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so one. and it's a plausible enough. You're under short on supplies. You still want to make money. Um, so you can't come up, whip up something. And so this is where he came up with his his uh, salad dressing and uh, from and his salad. Dude, it's totally it, it's it's totally true that it's that time you're like sitting at home and you're like, oh, I don't really want to go out for dinner. Yeah. I don't really have anything in the fridge. Let's crack open the freezer and see what things I can mix together yeah. to make some food. Yeah, yeah. And so apparently it was a, a American airmen were there at the time. This is, I mean, there's, like I said, there's a couple different versions of the story, but it all kind of comes down yeah. to this. Um, and it was called Aviator Salad, apparently, in the beginning. And so like his brother, Cesar Cardini's brother said, no, my brother didn't make it. I made it. And it was whatever. But it was at the restaurant, whatever the case. And this is yeah. this is how it got its name eventually from... Uh, so Alex Cardini actually did eventually, he continued calling it Aviator Salad after and opened his own little restaurant and stuff. But uh, it was his brother's version, at least, that took off. And I think, and then and why, I think if I remember correctly, Alex Cardini's version had like anchovies or something, which I don't know, that just doesn't seem like something you want to put on a salad. Um, so his version didn't take off like the Caesar salad version that we know. Um, and you could still buy yeah. if you go to the, I don't know if you can buy it in Europe, but uh, in the US anyway, Caesar Cardini, the Cardini's Caesar salad dressing is still available, uh, presumably. I don't know huh. if it's still the original recipe, but um, but yeah. Interestingly, the original Caesar salad was not meant to be eaten with forks, though. You were supposed to eat it on that, it was that romaine lettuce and you're supposed to, all the ingredients would be topped on top and then you would eat it like huh. the lettuce is like a spoon. I have had Caesar salad like that. Ah. I don't remember where or when, but I, I'm familiar with yeah, this. That's the, I didn't know that was the original version. I yeah. thought that was like the modern hipster yeah. version. Nowadays, of course, all the same ingredients are pretty much the same, but we just mix it all together, you know, and, and eat it with fork. But um, you know what? All this all this hot Caesar talk has got me. I, I'm, I know what I'm having for lunch today. We're recording this at 11 o'clock. I didn't eat breakfast because I don't really eat breakfast. But as soon as we're done here today, 
well, maybe not as soon as we're done here today, but I'm going over. There's a baguette place right near me that makes uh, called a Caesar salad baguette. Oh, so it's oh. kind of like cheese and lettuce and uh, bits of bacon and uh, Caesar dressing. It's it's actually pretty delicious. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Whenever researching these food ones, so hungry by the end. Like the buffalo Dang. wing one or the French fries one. Oh. That one took forever. Both of those, because especially the buffalo wing, because there's a contested story, so you really got to dig deep to, to kind of sort through to kind of see which one's true and not always easy so it takes a long time and you're sitting there for like ever and you're just like oh buffalo wings so good <laughs> oh buffalo wings yeah. hey uh, just to bring it back to a, a a call back to a previous episode i tried to get ranch dressing um, oh so i think on a on a previous one we'd said like when this ends yeah. i'm gonna go out because there's this uh kind of american store near me which sells like uh, american mm-hmm. stuff like uh sauces and all of this dude no ranch dressing. Interesting. And it's a big store and they had all sorts of hot sauces and American things that... It's probably fine though because if you're going to... If your first ranch dressing situation... Because the, the different, you know, manufacturers, they make slightly different flavors. I, I don't really like a lot of the bottled versions. But the best ranch dressing of all time <laughs> is is here right next to where you're going to be in like a month. And we're definitely going to go uh, and we're going to have it. So at least that will be your first ranch dressing experience. And then if you don't like that, then I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with you. It's it's delicious. I'm super excited about it. Yeah. Is this the one with the ranch pizza? Yeah, as well? it's the ba- uh, chicken bacon ranch pizza. And then you dip it in the ranch because that just makes it better. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's a buttermilk ranch. It's probably like they make it themselves there. I tried to get the swindle the recipe out of them at one point and they gave me vague hints. They were like, if you just play with these ingredients right here, just keep playing with it. You'll hit it eventually. And they wouldn't give me exact because I was moving away from that area. And I was like, please. Do you want to do you want to hear a, a, a Reddit? Someone asks on Reddit, why doesn't the UK have ranch dressing? You know, oh, really? <laughs> their, ex, their expanded comment is this seems so elementary. But yeah. if you love ranch like I do, this is a disservice to humanity. <laughs> it's not a third world country, for Christ's sake. <laughs> this is the thing is <laughs> Europeans love their mayonnaise. And this is a mayonnaise based product. It's like mayonnaise and sour cream and maybe buttermilk or something mixed in, depending on the type, you know, and with some seasoning like this is this this is something that I think would take Europe by storm. Like if someone introduced it, I don't know why, how it's not a thing because you dip everything in it is delicious. Dipping fries in it, whatever. Someone says the only thing, the only place you can get it, there's no dip in fries. There's nothing like that. They say the only place you can get it is Subway. You know, Subway, the sandwich, oh. of course you do. It's a uh, big American uh, thing as well. Subway. Subway's ranch. They say is, it's subpar. Is, Subway's ranch is subpar. subpar. It's not good. Uh, I don't know if they use like a low fat one or something, but yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of the Subway Ranch. That's the thing. There's a huge variance in ranches depending on what brand you're buying and like what type they have like buttermilk. And so, you know, it's you're kind of hit and miss depending on where you're getting it from. Also, I'm going to insist on calling it ranch the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Ranch dressing. Bringing it back to so that how did the Caesar salad get popular in the first place? Uh, So this got a huge, of course, this is near Hollywood and everything. So uh, Hollywood, uh, 1937, Manny Wolf. He was a Hollywood screenwriter for Paramount. He began distributing the recipe around um, at various restaurants in the U.S. He was traveling because he wanted it. He wanted to have that mm-hmm. either. So here's how you make it. And so this kind of started to spread it. And then it actually spread to Europe. Uh, it's usually thought to be Mrs. Wallace Warfield Simpson. Do you know who this is? Is that the wife of that dude? Yeah, Prince Prince Edward the the Eighth of Wales. Yeah, by that dude, I mean, I think he was king, right? <laughs> really, was he? Wasn't there some scandal about... You would definitely know more than me on this one. Dude, my, my knowledge of the royal family. I, I literally found out it was the royal wedding. There was the, the the Prince Harry getting married to that American girl this last weekend. So maybe a month or two back when you listen to this podcast. Uh, I found out about this like three days before. 
because I just it's just doesn't come onto my radar. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I'm totally fine yeah. with that. Is that is? But I thought there was something about him getting married to an American socialite, and then he had to give up. Like he gave the up one? the throne yeah. because I, I don't know. Yeah, there is one. One of those was like that, and he gave it up, and that's how you have the queen. Queen Elizabeth got got her. I feel there's a movie about this, maybe with Madonna or something. Oh, uh, was the king of the United Kingdom and the Dominion of the Empire and Emperor of India? Oh, of course. Before he, he he did abdicate. Uh, abdication. Yeah. After which he became the Duke of Windsor. Yeah. He expressed his desire to marry Wallace Simpson when she became free to remarry. So I think there was some problem with her being divorced or not of royal blood or something. So he had to abdicate or some stuff like that. Or I th- maybe he just didn't really want to be king or something like that. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it's thought that that she, Mrs. Wallace Warfield Simpson, this this his mistress. An eventual wife uh, brought it over because she actually used to go to Caesar's restaurant a lot and uh, Caesar Cardini's mm-hmm. restaurant. And uh, yeah, thought that she's the one who brought it back um, to Europe. All right. Caesar salads. Yeah. Now I'm so hungry. Next bonus fact. What's up next? Yeah. So speaking of Caesar boldly going and conquering Rome with only one legion oh, when he no, was outnumbered. Here, here we yeah, go. Yeah. So the famous <laughs> Star Trek line to boldly go where no, where no one has gone before. So... Smooth, yeah, smooth. So where did this come from? And it turns out it, it's thought to it was in well, it was inspired by a passage in a White House issued pamphlet on space. Um, so the uh-huh. the specific pamphlet was called Introduction to Outer Space. And do you want to read? This is a great quote. Yeah, I got the quote. Uh, it is useful to distinguish among four factors which give importance, urgency, and inevitability to the advancement of space technology. The first of these factors is the compelling urge of man to explore and to discover, the thrust of curiosity that leads men to try to go where no one has gone before. Most of the surface of the Earth has now been explored, and men now turn to the exploration of outer space as their next objective. Yeah, so that's nice. Yeah, so this this was actually a pamphlet published in March 26, 1958 uh, by the Presidential Science Advisory Committee. Um, so it was just originally just for the president to read and sort of, um, uh, as a, uh, you know, briefing of some kind. Yeah. And so the president was saying he hoped it would kind of, um, disseminate throughout the U S and uh, spread around and so, um, get support for the, you know, this space travel and everything. Um, and it's a, it's a really, the whole pamphlet is actually really quite interesting. If you want to go read it, you can Google, uh, their presidential science advisory, uh, and then the introduction to outer space, which probably is going to come mm-hmm. up. Um, it's quite interesting and it's just, uh, it's written to just why, why we should, why should we go to space? Like, what's the point? Um, why should we spend all this money, technical, uh, you know, all this stuff that we are risking lives to do it. Um, and this is just what the pamphlet's about. It's just, you know, exploration and why, you know, uh, cause I mean, honestly, if you look at most of human exploration, it's like, why, why do we do that? Like, it's just cause we do, we like to like to go see yeah. There was someone talking about like, why are we thinking of sending humans to Mars? Why don't we just send robots there? It's going to be far easier, far better. They can do everything better than we can. What's up with that? And I feel like the answer is because we can. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And it's awesome. Like the, it's the, the whole point of like, yeah, we did that. You know, we sent that guy there or the girl there or whatever. And they're just like walking on Mars. Like, 
millions of miles away. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, yeah. it's inspirational. Like, what's the point of doing anything, really? We're all going to die at some point, you know? Like, our entire species is going to be wiped out. Yeah. Whatever we do, I mean, we can go over to Mars and that increases our chances of survival, but eventually something's going to yeah. kill us all. It, yeah. If you're the most infamous person in history, at some point, someone's going to forget that humans ever existed. So, what's the point of anything? But just, you know, it's fun to do things and, like, that's a fun thing wow, to do. Did we just make an argument for Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, you could be the most infamous person in history, but who cares? Everyone's going to forget eventually. <laughs> They absolutely will. At some point, every everyone and the universe will might die anyway, or at least, you know, all memory of like, certainly like, I mean, even so people always say like, oh, well, it's so going to be so great to be a historian like 10,000 years from now, because look at all this. We have so much data on everything, these email archives and everything. But like, no, actually, if you really look at it, all our digital data or our, all our data is digital now. And the more and more we go to that, the more and more it's going to be likely that like this entire gap in history is going to come about yeah. because you have these, you have these, you know, storage mediums that are going to fade, you know, and sure, like they might come up with, you know, there's ways to sort of extract stuff. But eventually, like if you go long enough, let's say, you know, without, without recording it in a more solidified way, you know, maybe there's some sort of new technology that'll last like millions of years that they can record the data and then that'd be great. But as of right now, if you look like even when I'm researching something like try to find like news articles from like um, or I should just say maybe not news articles because some news agencies are pretty good at archiving their stuff right now. But what happens when that news agency goes out of business? Like that happens. What happens to all that Who data? Who the archive? Yeah, yeah. So you have like the Wayback Machine and stuff, but it's not documenting everything. And uh, certainly, no. you know, all this, all these hard drives and all this like Google. And what can we learn from this? Yeah. So th we should be pressing this podcast onto vinyl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a physical form is is sort of that that would be a great one that would survive if you kept it, you know, from heat, too yeah. much heat and but yeah, most of most of the ways we have data stored, it's like, oh, it's just gone like you, you know, and then it's gone. No one has reference to it anywhere on like a physical book where you might like uncover it in the archives and like the somewhere or something, some library. Or Can you also imagine the on the other hand, if all of this data survives, this guy, you know, it's great being a historian. You'll have all this data, yeah. but it's like that is there is so much. Yeah, exactly. That yeah, and that could I mean at some point, you know, there are there are entities out there that are working like the Wayback Machine to try to archive these things and try to do yeah. it if for the long haul, like to try to come up with ways to make the data last. And then you have like the they have like that those um like in was it uh, Switzerland or whatever where they have those uh, vaults like then they'll withstand like nuclear blasts and everything and they have the data and not only do they have the data there in sort of like as long term form as we can but um, they also have like the ways to instructions yeah instructions on how to sort of language neutral like mathematical instructions on how to actually read these things and create a device that can read them and everything but even then which is even then like like creating instructions on how to build a computer for a species yeah. that might not like either us or another intelligent species in the future it's like incredibly difficult yeah have you have you read about the yucca mountain thing where they're trying to decide like how do we indicate that it's extremely dangerous to open up this vault <laughs> like let's say a uh, hundred thousand years in the future humanity which is unrecognizable from humanity today are like they discover this giant underground vault from a previous species and they're like what is this and what is this symbol on the front which to us would just be like death mm -hmm. radiation you will die if you go inside and they'll be like oh it I think what I was reading is that like the radiation symbol to a future thing might look like a bird or an angel or a man yeah. with wings. And they're like, we should go in here. I bet there's something amazing in here. Yeah. And so they were trying to come up with all these ways to kind of indicate death and yeah. danger to a species which would have no cultural context, no language yeah. context or anything like that. It was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. 
And I mean, presumably at some point, maybe we come up with ways where we can make a thing that'll a data storage device that will last, you know, a million years or something, you know, or thousands and thousands of years without degrading to the point of being unreadable. But uh, but you always assume like humanity is going to progress, but it could go the other way. And then they find all these like magnet, this tape you know, magnet, magnetic yeah. tape, and they use it for other stuff to make, I don't know, make rope, or maybe they find the hard drives with their, you know, the physical storage devices with all the magnets and the value. Look at all these bricks. Yeah, look at these like, really <laughs> valuable materials. We don't even know how to make these. This is like, this is magical. Let's use these materials for other things. Just like take them all apart. And, but yeah, it's interesting. So it's not necessarily, it could be, it could be that they'll have all this data and everything, but it could also be that just because it's not just like a matter of that. Like you, you think also... When companies go out of business, who's backing up that data that they used to have, like a like a news agency or something? Like sometimes nobody, you know, and then that's just yeah. all of that's just gone, um, unless you have like the Wayback Machine or something that, that is trying to archive everything. But that's impossible, of course. Yeah, I do. I do come across this all the time where I'm researching something and then someone will reference something from like you know 2002 or something, and I'll try to find a copy of that, and it just doesn't exist anywhere on the it's internet anymore. Gone. Yeah, and yeah. so we just have references to it, which you have this. In historical documents too, like you read books and they'll reference something that we no longer, you know, have. So we kind of just have like allusions to it. And so that happens there too. But it's, uh, I feel like in the digital age, there's a chance for that to happen a lot more. On that depressing note, it's kind of a bit, I don't know if depressing is the right words, but like, you know, what's the point of making all this stuff? What's yeah. the point, you know? Enjoy the, enjoy the go. journey, kind of like going to Mars, bringing it back is, uh, it's, yeah. it's like a thing to do. Oh, look at you, we're doing Star Trek facts and you got your Picard mug. Yeah, got my Picard yeah. mug. For reference to people, we uh, when David and I met in Amsterdam a couple of months ago, he he always tells me how he has he drinks Earl Grey out of a, a teacup like uh, yeah. Jean Luc Picard has yeah. in uh, the Next Generation. So he brought me a couple. Yeah. And I'm drinking. I'm drinking water out of it right yeah. now. But uh, yeah, they made those in the in the Earl 1980s, Grey. and that's the you can kind of find them on eBay now. Is basically, and they're great. I bought a ton like a lifetime supply because I was like, I'm sure I'll break some over the over the years. Yeah, so I just want a lot, and I like them a lot. Anyways, so they're coming back to the uh, the thing. So this this to boldly go right. Everyone, so you have to boldly go where no one has gone before. And this always people are always like, oh, that's like the most famous example of that grammatical error, right? Splitting the infinitive. You know, you got to boldly go instead of to go boldly. Dude, my grammar's so bad. If someone said like, I don't even know what a split infinitive is. Yeah, this is where you have that like to go right. So you would say to gold to go boldly if you didn't want to split the infinitive, or you can say. To boldly go, and so you're putting that boldly ah, okay. between the two. Uh, so this, but the thing is, is it turns out, as much as people say this, this is not a thing. This is not a thing in grammar. This wasn't a thing until a very, very brief period in like the late 19th and early 20th century, and then it was a thing people have just repeated. But splitting infinitives in English is perfectly fine, and there is zero good reasons why you shouldn't do it, as we're going to get into. It also sounds better. To boldly go sounds way better than to go boldly. Yeah, it does. But maybe that's just because I think of Star Trek. Yeah, well, it's true. And But then you also have many cases where if you don't split the infinitive, something it doesn't sound as, as clear, like it's not as precise. You might you might actually have a situation where you can kind of interpret a sentence a very variety of different ways. So sometimes some, yeah. sometimes it's good to split, sometimes not. Yeah, so this this was like, if you look at modern English grammar guides or even ancient well, relatively ancient English grammar guides, uh, they, they, this was fine. It was not a big deal. No one thought it was a big deal. Um, right from the beginning of English, the first split infinitives known popped up around the 13th century. Uh, Oxford dictionaries, do you want to read their quote on the uh, split infinitive? 
Yes, I do. People have been splitting infinitives for centuries, especially in spoken English, and avoiding a split infinitive can sound clumsy. It can also change the emphasis of what's being said. Yeah, so despite what everyone says, you look at all the grammar guides, you're like, no, this is perfectly fine. And it wasn't until the 19th century when uh, the matter was brought up at all, and then into the 20th century, uh, certain uh, certain people thought it shouldn't be something. Uh, so It's like our early 20th century grammar Nazis. Yes. Although they definitely wouldn't have called them grammar Nazis because Nazis yeah, weren't a thing. Wouldn't have. Uh, which speaking of, I always like to do, you know what I always do, and it, it, it's it's great. Uh, it's if whenever you say gram or write grammar Nazis, the best thing to do, even if you're just like a side, like oh grammar Nazis, not even say something bad, is you put the apostrophe there in between the the i and the s, <laughs> like it's like you're doing the plural of that, and you just don't mention it, and it is great. Like yeah. you just watch the comments blow up. It's great. They are they get quite. <laughs> funny about it. It's awesome. Uh, but yeah, I do that all the time. It's like a little private joke uh, in my articles. But um, so we have a, so 1907, the King's English uh, has this to say on the split infinitives. They say, the split infinitive has taken such a hold on the consciousness of journalists that instead of warning the novice about splitting his infinitives, we must warn him against the curious superstition that the splitting or not splitting makes the difference between a good and a bad writer. Yeah. It's, pre it's pretty damn clear on what yeah. is right no one, and what is not no right. One's, I mean, well, I shouldn't say no one. There there were some people, but it was a minority and it didn't make any sense, the arguments, as we'll get into in a second. But um, so yeah, you, had this, you still have a minority. Like You still have the older generations like going into like 1983. We have this uh, great, uh, it was noted in the BBC special on English grammar. One reason why the older generation feels so strongly about English grammar is that we were severely punished if we didn't obey the rules. One split infinitive, one whack. Two split infinitives, two whacks, and so on. So is this, yeah. did you go to like a, like a, where you call them, you don't call them public schools, it's the other way around. Is the public schools is the private schools. It's, it's backwards in the way you say it, right? It is. I would, I went to what we would call a public school and what you would call a private yeah, school. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought, yeah. Yeah. And so is this like, yeah. was this like a thing still like this whole, like the, you have the stereotypical, like the British, you know, boarding schools or something where they're like, you know, the, with the cane, like, like he's describing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they're like lawless. Uh, if, just because they're not run by the state <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean they can do corporal punishment. Yeah. Although <laughs> I did. There's, oh man, there was this, <laughs> I was quite, I was quite a good student, but I was never really a sportsman. And I remember there was a, there was one sports teacher who was, you know, he was a he was a South African guy, and he was like, when I was a boy, they would uh, if we misbehave in class, they would whack us with a stick. But I cannot whack you with a stick because you have laws. <laughs> if if you do not do what I say, I will make you run and run and run until you puke. <laughs> it's like oh, so yeah, and he would he would he would send us on extremely long runs if we weren't putting in enough effort. That's, that's just be like. He'd just make us run around this giant field. Mm -hmm. And then if he saw us not running, he would just shout at us for hours. <laughs> it's like quite brutal. No, but uh, to, 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 there was no cane. There was definitely no, no cane. cane. I think there was no cane for a solid 50 years before that. Yeah, yeah okay. So, the, so yeah, you have... Sorry to disappoint you. Yeah, it's, it's, you're like shattering my view of the, of the, <laughs> the British boarding schools or the private school, <laughs> public schools. Um, yeah. yeah, so so you have Merriam-Webster's dictionary even goes so far as to state there's there has never been a rational basis for objecting to the split infinitive, and so why? How did this become a thing? And this is going to kill everyone. I think the, the, this is okay. like the actual reason that it seems to be the case is because in Latin you cannot split an infinitive. 
it's not possible. And so the academics, certain academics, I should say, who, you know, Latin was the, the language of academics. You can't do it in Latin. Yeah. Therefore, you can't do it in English, but you can do it in English. And it's quite helpful to do sometimes. Uh, Important to point out two distinct yeah, languages. Yeah, two different languages. Just because you can't do it in the you know, language of academics uh, doesn't mean you uh -huh. can't do it. And so this really is like seems to be the reason it became a thing for a very brief time for like a minority of linguists. Um yeah, and so the and the other thing, uh, so then eventually people were like, no, no, it's because common usage, no one splits infinite, infinite. So this was like, so we have this quote from um, the one of the popular uh, people who helped popularize the anti-split infinitive movement was uh, Henry Alford, the dean <laughs> Henry of Alford, yeah, dean of Canterbury, yeah. Uh, and so he was he used this argue this common usage argument in his The Queen's English, eighteen sixty four. A correspondent states as his own usage and defends the insertion of an adverb between the sign of the infinitive mood and the verb. He gives the instance to scientifically illustrate, but surely this practice is entirely unknown to English speakers and writers. It seems to me that we ever regard the two of the infinitive as inseparable from its verb. And when we have the choice between the two forms of expression to scientifically illustrate and to illustrate scientifically, there seems no good reason for flying in the face of common usage. I, this common usage stuff is stuff we've talked about before, right? Yeah. Like about, there's no and words and stuff. It's not wrong. Yeah. It's a word is a word. Yeah, and, this and common usage is okay. Yeah. And all of this like grammar Nazi stuff's kind of the, the academics and the big books are like, it's cool. Yeah. It's totally cool. Yeah, and exactly. I, if you actually look at dictionaries and stuff, they're like, yeah, everything is a word from the moment someone says it. Like, like you look at all the dictionaries, yeah. they, they definitely take, this is the thing I found really online, you know, writing, you know, millions and millions of words is like the actual like linguists and stuff are so nice when you make a grammatical error and they're so much more like pleasant about it and so much more lax. Uh, in general about like you know using slang terms and these sorts of things it's just sort of like this it's, it tends to be more like the amateur linguists i've i've found mm -hmm. that are really sort of like the grammar nazi stereotype of that sort of like uh, just getting offended about every little thing and like no that's not a word and like you when you actually look at the actual linguists when they when they ring on on things it's just like they're so the opposite of that attitude it's just like yeah language it's fun like play with words play with you know sentence structure have fun with it Small dog barks the loudest, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting, I mean, obviously there's not universally true. I'm sure there's um, some grammar Nazi professional <laughs> linguists, but uh, so like this guy, but this is the thing is with his. So he says like, no one, no one splits an infinitive, right? No one, no one does this. And it's like, well, no, people have actually been doing this like since English has been English almost. And so it is common usage. I don't know, maybe he just surrounded by academics, so he doesn't hear it or whatever, because so, they were taught a certain way. So then we have the uh, Kermes Grammar of the English Language, which says... Split infinitive usage should be furthered rather than censored, for it makes for clearer expression. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll sort of wrap this one up with this great, great quote from one uh, author, Raymond Chandler, um, to his editor mm -hmm. in the Atlantic Monthly. So, uh, so it turns out the I'm familiar with this. Yeah, the the editor. Yeah, the editor removed some split infinitives that he had done, and so he had this to he wrote to them and had uh, something to say about it. <laughs> so snarky. By the way, would you convey my compliments to the purist who reads your proofs and tell him or her that I write in a sort of broken down patois? 
patois, sure. which is sure, <laughs> which is something like the way a Swiss waiter talks, and that when I split an infinitive, god damn it, I split it, so it will remain split. And when I interrupt the velvety smoothness of my more or less literate syntax with a few sudden words of barroom vernacular, this is done with the eyes wide open and the mind relaxed and attentive. The method may not be perfect, but it is all I have. I really like that. Yeah, that's And if people haven't watched um, the guy who does the fact show QI. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. Go, go look up Stephen Fry on language and grammar. This is like a great... Uh, someone made a video. I think it's from a quote from maybe his autobiography or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. That he's talking about language. And he, he does a great job right there. Of sort of like my interaction with various linguists and stuff. Sort of how their attitude on language and stuff. And it, it's a great... Go, go check it out. Um... Uh, Stephen Fry on grammar, on language. I'll Google it real quick just to make sure it comes up. Yes, like number one results when you Google it for watch the YouTube video. And uh, he has a, he's reading it and someone does a little kinetic typography while, that, while he's reading it. It's, it's a great thing that's sort of, uh, yeah. It's, uh, he's, you know, he's kind of known for his fine speaking and language, love yes. of language. And yeah, he, he definitely seems to more represent most linguists I've ever interacted with. In his attitude there. It's a great video. It's the professionals yeah. rather than the amateurs. Yeah, exactly. Because so even then, even when you do make mistakes, like they're very polite about it. They're like, hey, you missed a comma or not a comma. I mean, they wouldn't probably ever comment on that unless you were being really excessive about it. But, you know, like, oh, hey, you got this apostrophe here when you meant this or you use this word and you meant this word or, you know, whatever. Very nice. Grammar Nazis, not so much. They're called Nazis for a reason. That's true. Ah, is that uh, any more facts today, or are we... Uh, no, I think we're on top I there. think that's good, and we're about an hour, so we're good. Cool. Guys, thank you all for listening. This one was a bit weird, because it's, it's sort of tangentially related to Caesar, and then we did our uh, <laughs> best segue ever into a, into a Star Trek fact. I liked it. It was good. Uh, I guess this is the, the end of the Caesar ser- series, right? Next week, we'll be moving on to something completely different. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I really hope you enjoyed the Caesar series. If you did, you know what I'm going to say. Give us a review. We like them. Uh, just hop onto iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and do that. I'm becoming such a professional podcaster with my calls to action for uh, iTunes reviews and and all of that. So someone actually described, I think we mentioned in a previous in, uh, previous podcast, how we don't sound like professional podcasters. And they like that because professional podcasters apparently sounded a bit bored, bored of what they were doing. But uh, anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back in a few days with another brand new show about a brand new topic. Speaking of, of Star Trek, they would love to replicate food in Star Trek, and I always thought that would be super cool. I'd replicate myself a sandwich baguette right now. <laughs>